Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. One of the great things about doing a podcast, I've learned, is that you can shift gears and change direction anytime you want. You can decide to completely change everything you're going to talk about five seconds before you're ready to click the record button. And nobody knows and nobody cares, as long as you're telling a good story. So I was all set to do one story today in this episode, but as I sat down at the microphone, I decided, you know what? I've had a kind of an interesting week in a lot of weird ways, so I want to talk about that instead of what I was going to talk about in the first place. What I wanted to talk about in the first place, I'll get to that in another episode or two. But here's what my week was like. In the last week, well, 10 days or so, I've done four segments for UFO TV shows. The first three were all for the same show, and this is kind of a a show where they bring me and other people in as guest experts to watch videos of UFOs or paranormal occurrences, and then the hosts of the show pick the guest's brain. They pick my brain and ask, well, Mark, have you ever seen anything like this before? You know, what what does it look like to you? Where, where do you think this came from? And so I do my five or 10 minute segment. I do my best to answer the host's questions and try to shed some light on what I think might be visible in the video. It's usually my best guess. I don't always have a whole lot of context when I'm when I'm looking at these videos, but I have enough experience I can draw on that I can often just say, well, yeah, this actually is reminiscent of a case that Project Blue Book looked at back in the 1960s. Or I can say, honestly, uh, yeah, I've come across this kind of UFO before when I was working for MUFON as an investigator. So, so that was last week's job. This week, uh, just yesterday, in fact, I did a six-hour-plus interview about UFOs and about Dr. J. Allen Hynek and about Project Blue Book for an upcoming documentary. I can't say too much about it, except it was produced by a company in New York called Breakthrough Films, and they showed up at my house in Atlanta yesterday morning at 7.30, and they were there until almost 5. They took over my entire house and turned it into a TV studio, and I did about six and a half or seven hours worth of interview. It was a really intense day. It was really fun. These guys totally took over my house. Luckily, my my wife and our dogs <laughs> went away for the day. And yeah, I just sat there in wonder as these guys moved furniture and moved moved home decorations and plants and just everything and started setting up all their lights and their audio shit. It was just it was amazing. And they had our we have a two-car garage and that garage was filled with people and video equipment. It was just crazy. So, so that was a very uh, unique experience. And at the end of the day, the, the production people, the director, they seemed, at least, seemed happy with, uh, with the way the interview had gone. I was happy with it. They, they threw me a few curveballs, but that almost always happens when you're talking about UFO. Somebody will sort of try to get you to comment on some controversial case or some controversial issue that's that's flared up in you in ufo land and you always have to sort of do your best to you know give a sensible and honest answer without really buying into the hype or the conflict because you you know usually you just don't don't want to go there 
So, yeah, really, really long, tiring day yesterday. And unfortunately, as as fun as the interview was yesterday, the, the downside w- was I almost completely missed Star Trek Day. Yesterday was Star Trek Day. It was the anniversary of the day that the original series of Star Trek premiered on NBC TV Network in 1966. And I have just been in complete awe of the amount of energy I'm seeing on Twitter over, well, geez, at least the last week, probably longer than that, of all sorts of people just getting so excited about Star Trek Day. It's just amazing considering back in 1966, Star Trek did not have much of a chance of succeeding. In fact, the franchise has come close to dying multiple times. And the fact that we're here today celebrating the 55th anniversary of the premiere of a show that spent its entire life at the absolute bottom of the TV ratings. I'm talking about Star Trek TOS, the original series. Here's how Star Trek almost died a couple of times. First of all, during its initial run on NBC, it had a Okay, first season. When I I say okay, I mean ratings-wise. The ratings were okay for the first season. The ratings were not so okay in the second season. The show was fantastic, as we all know. One of the things that made the show so fantastic was, to me, was the fact that they brought in actual science fiction writers. There are so many uh, science fiction TV shows that were written by people who didn't know shit about science fiction, didn't know how to tell a science fiction story whatsoever. But Star Trek Star Trek hired actual science fiction writers. So yeah, year two, Star Trek is really, really struggling in the ratings. And NBC announces that it's canceling the show. Now, back in the 60s, a, a full season for a TV show then was 26 episodes. They would show 26 episodes in the first half of the year, and then they would rerun those same 26 episodes for the second half of the year, coming to a grand total of 52 showings for 52 weeks of the year. The problem was that Star Trek's ratings kept going lower and lower and lower. And when NBC announced that they were canceling the show after only two seasons, that meant that there were only... 52 actual episodes that Paramount could market to TV networks. And that just wasn't going to happen back then in the late 1960s. So Paramount would need to have three seasons worth or 78 episodes in order to be able to sell the series into syndication at independent TV stations. So Being canceled after two seasons was an absolute disaster for this show. That meant that it was just going to fade into obscurity like so many other shows before it. It was just going to disappear and people probably would never see it again. A a couple of fans spearheaded by one woman, I think her name was B-Jo. B-Jo Trimble, if I'm remembering right, was her name. She organized a campaign among Star Trek fans to write letters, a letter-writing campaign to NBC TV, begging them, demanding them to renew Star Trek for a third season. And amazingly, they succeeded. 
All of these fans who wrote to NBC actually swayed the network executives, and they said, okay, we will do a third season, but there are going to be some changes. Gene Roddenberry, the genius creator of the show, the creator of the Star Trek universe, Gene Roddenberry was going to take a back seat in the production of the third season, and they brought in this new producer, Fred Freiberger. And, of course, the budgets were cut. The budgets were much smaller in the third season because Paramount was really hedging their bets. And the, the shows were not nearly as good. The writing wasn't as good. Um, the directing wasn't as good. They had episodes like the one called Spock's Brain, which everyone pretty much agrees is kind of the low point of the entire Star Trek franchise. Spock's Brain. Yeah, they, they took Spock's Brain. Aliens took Spock's Brain out of his head and robotized him. They put a little robot control unit on his head where his brain used to be so that they could control Spock. Um, yeah, I don't need to say anything more than that. So the letter writing campaign was a success. Star Trek got picked up for a third season, but only a third season. Of course, it died after that. But there were 78 episodes now, and that was enough for Paramount to go out into the marketplace and syndicate the reruns to TV stations, individual TV stations around the country. So Star Trek lived. For the first time, Star Trek survived a near-death experience. Now, years went by, Star Trek's cult following grew and grew and grew, and I say cult here in a very loving manner, because I was part of that cult. The Star Trek fan cult grew and grew. There started to be Star Trek conventions. I talked a little bit about the first one of those I went to in an earlier in an earlier episode here. Star Trek was alive. It 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 wasn't fully alive, but it was alive. It still existed and it was still it still existed in the public consciousness. I guess that's the that's the important thing to say. Star Trek was alive in the public consciousness and the characters Kirk, Spock, Uhura, Scotty, Dr. McCoy had their own, had their own fans, their own fan bases. It was really an amazing thing. Well, we get into the 1970s, and NBC does this sort of half-hearted attempt to bring Star Trek back as an animated series on Saturday mornings. Now, back in the early 1970s, cartoons were pretty much only shown on Saturday morning because they were considered kids' shows. There were a few primetime animated TV shows like The Flintstones. In their day, they were they were aired during primetime as though they were adult cartoons, but Star Trek the animated series never made that jump to primetime. It existed I think only for one season uh, on Saturday mornings on NBC, and yet it was a fairly intelligent and sophisticated show compared to every other cartoon that was on TV on Saturday morning. And, and it was fun. A lot of the actors came back and did their voices for the animated series. They got at least a few uh, science fiction writers to, to do scripts for the show. And, and it, was, it was a pretty good deal. It still wasn't real Star Trek, though. So the 70s wear on, and we get to 1977, and these two amazing things happen. We have Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Two movies that came out in 1977 and just rocked the entertainment world. They were both such huge, huge mega hits that all the studios started looking through their libraries to see if they had any science fiction properties that they could develop anew to try to ride this wave of popularity of science fiction movies that, that had been kicked off by Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
And of course, they came up with Star Trek. Paramount calls Gene Roddenberry up and says, dude, we need you back. We need to do something about your show. We need to bring it back in some form. Now, there, there were already talks going on to bring Star Trek back as a new TV series, okay? And if I recall right, it would, have, it would have been sort of a hybrid. There would have been some of the original series characters and some, of, some, some new characters rounding out the crew of the Enterprise. Well, when those two movies came out in 77, Paramount said, uh, let's not do this as a TV series. Let's do it as a big budget feature. We can do this. Star Trek can adapt to the big screen. It can be a theatrical release, and it can be just as successful as Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Why? Because it had this huge, huge cult audience. It had this huge following of fans who, as Paramount knew, were willing to go to great lengths to support Star Trek and to keep Star Trek in business. The question was, what form would it take? So Paramount tells Gene Roddenberry, scrap the TV pilot, start developing it as a feature film. So Roddenberry starts developing it as a feature film. Paramount gets cold feet and says, wait a minute, let's go back to a TV pilot. Paramount gets cold feet again and says, wait a minute, let's do it as a feature. So they kept, they kept playing ping pong with Gene Roddenberry and with the script he was developing for what was either going to be a Star Trek motion picture or was going to be the pilot episode of a Star Trek TV series if Paramount could ever make up its mind. So this, in, in my opinion, is the second near-death experience that Star Trek that Star Trek suffered through. Because with all this indecision going on, the whole thing could have easily fallen apart. Somehow, the parties involved persevered, and at the very last minute, like just within like months of going into production, Paramount finally says, okay, we're doing it as a feature film. Gene, go out. Take everything you were preparing for the TV show, make it into a feature film. And Star Trek fans everywhere were thrilled to death to know that finally, finally, the show was going to come back as a big screen theatrical release. It was the most exciting news possible for Star Trek fans. I was thrilled to death. My friend John was thrilled to death. My friend John the Trekkie. And we made plans to go see the movie on its opening night. Well, we go to see the movie, and unfortunately, despite the fact that it had a whole lot of high points, and despite the fact that it was amazingly cool to see all our favorite characters back, alive again, living on the silver screen, as cool as that all was, the script was, to put it kindly, the script was lacking. Why? Because it had started out as a TV script, and at the last minute it had to be reconceived as a feature film script, and it, and, and it didn't make the translation very well. It, it wasn't big enough. The story wasn't big enough for a feature film. It, it, had, it had echoes of earlier successful Star Trek episodes from the original series. Uh, the storyline in Star Trek The Motion Picture was really derivative of a couple of Star Trek episodes, which, which you know, was a crushing disappointment. So we go to see this movie expecting it's just going to move heaven and earth. It's just going to be this unbelievable experience. And it turns out it's kind of this, it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. There, there was really no there there. It was just kind of a, kind of a dud. It felt kind of half-hearted and, and, and not really, really Star Trek. Horrible disappointment. And this is the third time Star Trek could have had a near-death experience. And I think probably did because the movie didn't do real well at the box office. 
Paramount, I think, was completely puzzled as to why. I'm sure Gene Roddenberry was too. But the first Star Trek movie was kind of a bomb. And, and by typical Hollywood rules, that would mean no follow-up, no sequel, no nothing. Star Trek is done. Well, somehow or other, the original movie was able to scrape enough money together in profits to encourage Paramount to go ahead and do another movie. That became Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which was actually an incredibly fun movie for Trekkies because it dipped into a storyline from one of, the, one of the superior episodes of the original season, but it wasn't, it wasn't a retread of that story. They brought a character back. They brought a villainous character back, Khan, and instead of repeating the story from the original episode, they came up with a new story for Khan, who turned out to be quite a formidable nemesis for Captain Kirk. So the movie was great. It was tons and tons of fun. And that's what saved the franchise, really. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, saved the franchise. So, here I am. I've just spent the day doing an interview yesterday, and I'm thinking, holy crap, I've almost missed Star Trek Day. So I decided to tune in Pluto TV and go to their Star Trek channel and see what they were showing. And I was ready for anything. I would watch anything, even Star Trek Enterprise. I would watch anything. Almost for Star Trek Day. So I tune in the Star Trek channel on Pluto, and it's there's like five minutes left of Star Trek Generations, which is the movie in which Captain Kirk from the original series and Captain Picard from The Next Generation come together to battle a baddie uh, played by Malcolm McDowell. So I saw like the last five or ten minutes of that movie, which was okay. But then the next movie I was kind of excited about, Star Trek First Contact. First Contact was the first Star Trek film to feature the cast from Star Trek The Next Generation and to not have anyone in it from Star Trek The Original Series. So it was kind of a big big leap forward for Star Trek movies. And it's a pretty fun movie. It's got a lot of action. They, it's kind of funny to see how hard they tried to make Jean-Luc Picard into an action hero. I mean, right down to wearing the John McClane wife beater, you know, in the final scenes of the movie when we finally defeat the Borg. The Borg, by the way, are great villains. Really fun movie. I was glad I watched it. One weird thing about it, though, is I have this, I have this thing about, in Star Trek First Contact, they, they brought back another character from Star Trek, the original series. In this case, they did not bring back the original actor because the original actor had passed away a few years before this movie went into production, which is too bad because I like that kind of continuity. And when, and when a show breaks that continuity by hiring a completely different actor to play the same role, eh, sometimes that bugged me. And in this case, it kind of bugged me because the portrayal of the character, Zephram Cochran, in the movie is very, very different from the way he was portrayed in the original series episode. In the original series episode, Zephram Cochran was played as the developer of Warp Drive. So clearly a key, key person in the Star Trek canon because without Warp Drive, there is no Star Trek. And here we had an episode in which the inventor of Warp Drive, Zephram Cochran, played a big, really big role. The episode for original series was called Metamorphosis. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it was the first Maybe maybe just one of the first episode of Star Trek that featured a story dealing with not just interracial love, but interspecies love. 
because the character of Zephram Cochran, the inventor of warp drive, was stranded on a desolate planet, but he was being kept alive by this cloud of energy that kept him young and healthy. And it turns out at the end of the episode that this energy cloud is in love with Zephram Cochran. And the character of Cochran, interestingly, in this story, when he finds out that this alien loves him, he rejects the alien, which is kind of a shocking moment in the episode. Eventually he comes around, but it creates a really, really interesting dramatic tension in this episode when Cochran, who we have assumed all along is, you know, a a modern product of the Federation of Planets, a man without prejudices, a man without hatred. And, And he has this intensely negative reaction when he finds out that this energy cloud he's been living with on this planet for years is actually in love with him. Everything comes out okay in the end, of course, because it's Star Trek, but it's a really interesting twist to the story. At any rate, Star Trek First Contact brings back the character of Zephram Cochran, but it's, again, played by a different actor, because the original actor, Glenn Corbett, had passed away a few years earlier. So played by a different character who plays Zephram Cochran as this kind of cocky, rowdy, cowboy dude who loves listening to old old rock and roll and is just kind of a doofus. It's not just that he differs so much from the original portrayal of Cochran. It's that he he doesn't seem like a guy who could invent warp drive (laughs) in the movie First Contact. He just seems like he comes off as too much of a doofus. I have a really hard time believing that this bonehead created warp drive and altered the course of history. But that's, that's just my opinion. Now, after that movie ended, I left the TV on this Star Trek channel for a little while longer to see what they would show next. Well, they were clearly showing the Star Trek movies in sequence because the next movie up after Final Contact was Star Trek Insurrection. And when I saw that, I inwardly groaned because it is, it is along with the movie that followed it, Star Trek Nemesis, it is the absolute worst of the Star Trek movies. Worse than Star Trek V, The Search for God, whatever they called it. Star Trek Insurrection is just a terrible, terrible movie. It, it, it really reads like a half-hearted expansion of, of a, an episode of The Next Generation. One of the things I dislike about it is it typifies one of my, one of my prob- problems I've always had with Star Trek, and I actually encountered it when I was writing for Star Trek. I have always been bothered by their portrayal of these pastoral, low-tech societies on these new planets they visit. Because they're just depicted as being so fucking lame. They're all these soft-spoken people who wear pastel-colored tunics and live in adobe houses. And nobody seems to have a job. And nobody, nobody seems to need to have a job. And yet everyone pitches in where they're needed. Whether it be building a new adobe house or perhaps harvesting the potato crop for that year. It's just this idyllic, peaceful culture that's, uh, that's just so sickeningly simple. I just can't stand it. And so Star Trek, Star Trek Insurrection takes place on one of these planets. And I, you know, I watched about 10 minutes, and already the, the, the peaceful dwellers of this planet were already getting all sappy. And, and uh, oh, here's another thing that typifies these societies is they cannot use contractions in their speech. They can't say can't. They have to say cannot. 
that's how you tell it's a primitive Star Trek society. They have to say can not. They can't say can't. That drives me up the wall. Also, chances are there's an apostrophe somewhere in their name. That also drives me up the wall. Typical Star Trek, Star Trek stupidity, in my opinion. The worst, the worst example of this pastoral, peaceful civilization. I'm going to really going out on a limb here because I'm going to criticize an episode from Next Generation that seems to be everyone's favorite. It's called The Inner Light. In this episode, Captain Picard is zapped off the bridge of the Enterprise and taken to a planet with a pastoral, pastel, peace-loving, vegetable-growing society where he lives out an entire lifespan. And um, to me, the, way this, the way this story is set up, we're supposed to feel that this, this would have been the ideal life for Jean-Luc Picard had he not been a Starfleet captain. And maybe part of him really longs for this sort of life. Maybe this was the life he should have led. These are the sorts of things he deals with as he's living out this entire lifetime on this pastoral planet. Maybe this is the life he should have led. And there's one... <sighs> okay, he's this character on this planet that Jean-Luc is, whose life Jean-Luc is living, uh, has a son who plays a flute. And there's a conf- if I remember right, there's a conflict in the, this story where Jean-Luc's character objects to his son's flute playing because the son wants to go on the professional flautist circuit and Jean-Luc wants his son to pursue something more practical. I mean, can you imagine anything more dopey? This kid thinks he's going to become a professional flautist and he's going to like go on tour as a flautist. And Jean-Luc Picard is like, no, son. No, that's that's too crazy. You need to choose a dependable living. Like like what? Digging potatoes? Fuck that. No, he wants to play the flute. Let him play the goddamn flute. It's the only music you have on this planet, apparently. Wow, I'm really getting a lot off my chest. So I feel like it's fitting, though, for Star Trek Day to talk about the good and the bad about Star Trek. But I can't just leave it there because there's one other moment in this script, The Inner Light, that just makes me howl with laughter when I hear it. Picard's character, this person whose life he's living on this other planet, Picard is talking with one of his friends and they're just sitting about idly. I think they're like hollowing out gourds or something, something very pastoral and pastel they're doing to pass the time away. And at the end of the conversation, Picard says to his friend, Come to dinner tonight, my friend. I'll make vegetable stew. That line makes me laugh so hard. Look, if there are two words you never want to hear come out of Jean-Luc Picard's mouth, they are vegetable and stew. It's the most embarrassing moment in Star Trek history, as far as I'm concerned. And as we all know, there are many embarrassing moments in Star Trek history, many of them including William Shatner. But man, oh God, think of, think of what, how it would have been if William Shatner had invited someone for vegetable stew. Oh my God. Could have been even worse, but it's pretty bad the way Jean-Luc does it. All right. I've probably pissed off a lot of Star Trek fans. I apologize about that. But I have had firsthand experience with some of this stuff, so, I, so I'm coming at it from a position of knowledge. 
I know how this stuff works with Star Trek. I'll talk more about it in future episodes. I'll be looking forward to actually talking about uh, my experience writing about a pastoral pastel planet for Deep Space Nine and, and how that went. It did not go well. So, yeah, that's, this is my own little tribute to Star Trek. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Star Trek is wonderful. I love it. I'm really liking the new show, Lower Decks. It's funny. It's smart. It's a whole lot better than a lot of the Star Trek that's gone before, where no man has gone before. And I would encourage you to watch it. Star Trek Lower Decks. Of all the new shows, and I, and I admit I haven't seen all of them, but of all the new Star Trek shows so far, this is the one that I like the best and the one that I will continue watching. Thanks for listening. This has been Farfetched. I'll talk to you again soon.